0: Uh, Because you don't have your bulletins with you, the title of our sermon is God's Foolish Wisdom. This is part five, and we begin looking at the ministry. And so far, starting in the end of chapter one of 1 Corinthians, we've been looking at how Paul contrasts the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of man. And we have seen that they're not just slightly different, they are worlds apart, so much so that man sees the cross and sees God's wisdom as foolish, and God, who frankly, his opinion and his truth is the only one that matters, sees and declares man's wisdom not only as foolish, but God's wisdom destroys, utterly decimates the wisdom of man. I wanted to share with you, just by way of introduction and and for something a little light, especially during these days, a first grade teacher decided to give every child in her class the first half of a well-known English saying or proverb, and then asked these kids, these first graders, to come up with the remainder of the saying, the proverb. And these are a few of the choice answers of the wisdom of the first grader. Again, the first part is is standard the teacher gave it to them and then the student the first grader was able to uh, fill in the rest strike while the bug is close it's always darkest before daylight saving time never underestimate the power of termites don't bite the hand that looks dirty Especially true during these days. I recommend not biting any hands. You can't teach a dog new math. An idle mind is the best way to relax. That one's dangerous. Don't follow the first grader's advice. Where there's smoke, there's pollution. Happy the bride who gets all the presents. A penny saved is not much. Laugh and the whole world laughs with you, cry, and you will have to blow your nose. You get out of something only what you see in the picture on the box. Children should be seen and not spanked or grounded. And perhaps my favorite, a bird in the hand is going to poop on you the wisdom of first graders well as cute as these are they actually highlight the difference between the wisdom of a child and the wisdom of an adult and in many cases these answers are are very practical the children's answers they actually make more sense than the actual proverb itself but only in the pragmatic, limited mind of a first grader. What's more, you, in listening to these, you can almost tell what is going on in their home, their current or limited experience, based on their answers. I mean, what first grader would would know about the destructive nature of termites unless they themselves experienced it and heard their parents dealing with the situation? Whatever they've said in answering these Proverbs and their practical advice only reflects their young and limited practical reality, just like the wisdom of all men. I mean, think about it as we've contrasted the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men, especially in how to reach salvation, how to reach heaven, how to be right with God in these false religions, they're all man-made, because in our experience, you have to work hard to succeed. In our experience, if you want anything good, you have to work hard and earn it yourself. And so that's why they come up with these things. And that's why they they look at the cross and they say, someone dying for our sins, that's foolish, that's hogwash, that's that's not going to work. Just pray a prayer, give my life to someone who did it all for me, that doesn't make sense because their experience is limited. And for something as big and, and as eternal as being with God, being right with God, going to heaven, then how much more to rely on our own works? How much more to rely on our own wisdom? But God's wisdom isn't like that. It is often not what you expect because it's not worldly. It's not based on our experience, and our experience which leads to expectations of more similar experiences. God's wisdom is not focused on what makes this life better. It's not devised from the finite mind living in the finite world. And we saw this centered in the cross. Again, only the the infinitely wise mind of God could come up with such a solution to man's problem, sin. And since the wisdom of God surrounds his salvation plan, it naturally follows that the message and the preaching of that message must follow that same wisdom, and indeed it does. For us, it's important to not merely know the wisdom in the message, in other words, to know about the cross, to know how and why we are saved, but also to present, to preach, to share, to give that message to others in light of that wisdom. So how do we do that? Especially when what we are presenting is a wisdom that man will naturally reject. In and of themselves, they they can't even understand it. The natural man does not comprehend the things of the Spirit. So how do we, as finite people who, yes, know and have experienced the wisdom of God, but it is still an otherworldly wisdom of God, how do we present that in line with the wisdom of the message? Well, this morning and in two weeks, we will see five lessons for evangelism, for our ministries in presenting the gospel. Five lessons for evangelism. From the wisdom of God in Paul's ministry, five lessons for evangelism from the wisdom of God in Paul's ministry, or specifically his preaching and If you recall this goes uh, in line with, with what we have been seeing, where we where Paul rather set the foundation of the wisdom of man versus the wisdom of God, highlighting of course God's wisdom. And then the past couple of weeks we saw two or the first of two practical manifestations of that wisdom. The first was the call, the salvific call, and now even more practical for us as we live our lives in this world, the ministry, the preaching, evangelism. Five lessons for evangelism from the wisdom of God in Paul's preaching. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, though we have entered a new chapter in 1 Corinthians, we are continuing the same flow of thought. Verses 1 through 5, 1 Corinthians 2. Again, we will unpack this over uh, two weeks. Next week is our Q&A, so we'll take a break. Verse 1, starting in verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. The first lesson for evangelism, from the wisdom of God and Paul's preaching, is that the mindset is distinct. The mindset is distinct. And for all of these, you could replace the with our. Our mindset is dis- distinct. Or rather, our mindset should be distinct when it comes to ministry and evangelism. Let me read for you again, verse 1. Paul speaking of himself, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, Proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Now, it's very important to understand that Paul is not referring to this epistle when he says, When I came to you. He's not referring to instruction to the Christians. He is referring to the first time he went to Corinth when they were unbelievers there and he preached the gospel to them. And as we know, they were saved and the the church at Corinth was established. Now, from this verse, we see that Paul's manner of preaching was distinct from the world, from from the way the world would do things, as should be ours. Distinct meaning, of course, it's not the same. It's different than the world. And the idea of how he approaches his preaching ministry, we've already seen back when we started talking about the wisdom of God. In fact, back in verse 17 of chapter 1, It was Paul saying that he did not come with cleverness of speech that really initiated or set off this entire discourse on the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world. In other words, this wasn't just about intellectual limitations that made his preaching style distinct. It was his mindset. He wasn't limited just because he wasn't very smart or because there was something wrong with his his physical ability to speak. It was a mindset that he chose to have. And what he says now to the Corinthians is that when he came to preach the good news, he rejected worldly methods. Specifically, he says in verse 1, he didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom. Of course, this speaks of worldly wisdom. Let's unpack these two things that he rejected the first is superiority of speech this is a a type of speech as indicated by by even the english the type of speech that kind of rises above the speech of others it, it, it is it is more eloquent more oratory than than just casual conversation this would refer to rhetorical display we've talked about this a lot in this in this uh this study this this phrase, superiority of speech, is translated different ways in your different English Bibles, and they all give insight into the actual meaning, the correct meaning in the Greek. The ESV translates it lofty speech. The NIV says eloquence. The KJV says excellency of speech. Now remember, the historical context of what paul is addressing and when he is writing this is the time of ancient greece the roman empire these things that you studied about back in high school these were uh, the the times of the infamous greek orators who were praised for their persuasive and eloquent oration and we see this today not 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 as pervasive in in our uh times in fact uh uh, speaking like this is is very rare, and, and in fact, speaking in slang and emojis and whatnot is is considered high speech sometimes. But even among public speakers, you know when there's someone who is a more captivating lecturer, professor, public speaker, keynote speaker, whatever it may be, than someone who isn't, someone who just is able to engage you, who is who is very fluent with the English language or whatever language they are speaking in. So that's superiority of speech. You would would hear this person speaking, and there's a reason there's so many people there to, to hear him, and the way he speaks is very distinct. It is more lofty than perhaps other speakers you've heard or even other professors you've had. The second worldly method that Paul rejected was wisdom. And we, again, we've talked about this a lot because this is really the theme, worldly wisdom versus God's wisdom. This is a cleverness, stuff that man can come up with, worldly wisdom. This is philosophy. Again, we are talking about a time and place in history where philosophy was at its peak. Back when we were studying uh, this topic in chapter 1, Paul said that he avoids such practices lest he make void the cross of Christ. And back when explaining that passage, I gave you three reasons focusing on, on this type of thing, on, on really just how you present rather than the message itself, how that could make void the cross of Christ. And I just want to go over those three again by way of reminder. The first way you can make void the cross of Christ is that you replace the power of the cross with human oratory persuasion. We see this all the time. Among false teachers, among, uh, different prosperity teachers and things like that. They, they don't highlight sin and the need for a savior and the importance of the cross. Rather, they impress people with their skills of speech, their oratory persuasion. And all of a sudden, when you can draw in crowds because how well you speak, then people are drawn to the, the, the messenger rather than the message. And so if that's what's getting people to put money in the offering pot, get people in the door, make you famous, then why not ditch the message and just impress people, feed your ego with your rhetoric. We can do this on a personal level by saying something That kind of borderlines on on seeker sensitivity and maybe we unintentionally just by our choice of words to the here we watered down total depravity or the the need for Christ or lordship salvation and you see their eyes perk up and all of a sudden the fear of man just rocks your mind and then you start thinking oh I, I can just impress him with how I'm speaking. Rather than focusing on the incredibly offensive but true saving message. A second way this could, um, focusing on, on, uh, on superiority of speech and worldly wisdom can make void the cross of Christ is that s- sophisticated speech was tied back then to a value system that prized education and social power. The cross, on the other hand, is for everyone not just the well-educated and powerful people of the world. And the focus on man's eloquence appeals to and elevates a certain type of person. And that goes to the detriment of everyone else. This dampens the power of the cross, which cuts through all human distinctions, whether race, class, gender, or social status. And for our context this morning, in terms of our personal ministry and evangelism, the gospel message is to be presented by all Christians, and not just the well-versed or the well-educated, so much so that the Bible says you are in sin, if you don't present that message to the unbelieving world. There is no out, there is no excuse, there is no teacher's note, because you don't evangelize, and your excuse is, well, I never completed high school, or I'm just not a good speaker or i'm 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 considered under the poverty poverty line that that doesn't matter. The gospel is for all and is to be preached by all Christians, and thirdly, clever speech is superficial, clever speech is superficial; it appeals to the motions without cutting to the heart of man as only the cross does and can do. You will get results with clever speech. In terms of followers, you may even get verbal professions of commitment, but they are not genuine. These people are not saved. If you have not truly shared the gospel with them, how can they be? Man's praise will come, perhaps even fame, as we've seen for many so-called Christian preachers around the world. But there will be no true conversion. And these people have filled stadiums with the false security of salvation. Whereas all of them are most likely damned because they've never been taught sin. They have never been taught repentance. So they may sit there praising that speaker, even in, with their lips saying praises to God, singing the worship songs, but... Thinking they're saved, they actually aren't because they've never been told they're sinners. So clever speech is superficial. And you can see how, and this is not a complete list, but you can see how if we just focus on our own ability to speak to the detriment of the gospel message, you make void the cross of Christ. You take away the only thing in anything you say that has the power to save. And then you're okay with crowds. You're okay with eyes lighting up and people smiling. But that's not true conversion. But back to our text. It's not that Paul didn't use speech or he didn't think about what he was saying. You can be sure that he chose his words very carefully, not just to be clear, but also in reverence to the message he was preaching, as we should as well. He was also orderly, as we see in his epistles, moving through consecutive thoughts that build upon each other. In other words, this is not an excuse to let go and let God and just throw out some random words and expect the Holy Spirit to do his thing. We still need to be clear. We we still need to explain the problem of sin before we explain the solution of the cross. And so, we need to think. We need to be smart about it. We need to know what facts are part of the saving message and how to present them in order. Not leaving out the cross, not forgetting the resurrection, not leaving out sin and repentance. But what Paul did avoid was focusing on what the Corinthians loved in a speaker and what they judged a speaker by. Think about that. Paul didn't care about what made him a good speaker in the eyes of the world. Ultimately, what we're talking about here is that he did not have the fear of man. Excellence? Yes. Clarity? Yes. Appealing to what people want? Absolutely not. He was focused on God and did not care about the social and cultural criteria for a good speaker. And in the end, the end of verse 1, look at what he proclaimed. The testimony of God. This is the full and complete saving gospel. I mean, think about that word testimony. When someone gives their testimony in a court of law, they are standing on the, or sitting at the witness stand, And they are testifying or serving as witness, eyewitness, to something they have heard or seen or experienced. Tell me, Mr. Chen, at 5.32 p.m. on Thursday night, on March 5th, were you such and such? Yes, I was doing this, and I remember I was in my kitchen and I heard an explosion. It is based on objective, personal facts. And when someone gives their testimony at church, it's the same thing. They're sharing with the congregation things about their own lives. We don't know what's going on if we haven't heard their testimony before. They're sharing things, how they grew up, their name, their occupation, their salvation story. We don't know these things. Only they know. They've experienced it. They are sharing what is true based on their lives and their experience in any true testimony, there is no speculation or guessing. They are simply relaying the facts of what they have experienced. And in the same way, this is what Paul was doing. This is what we must do in evangelism. We do not embellish. We do not conjecture. We do not add worldly wisdom to a very clear, and frankly, simple message that is inherently hostile to worldly wisdom, or really any wisdom that we could come up with. That's what makes our mindset distinct. We do not follow the status quo of society. We do not put the focus on ourselves. We do not tell our version of the story. We follow God's wisdom, put the focus on Him, and tell His story as He wants us to. And that's why our mindset is distinct. Because society does what everyone else does. They, they gauge their, their success as a speaker based on what society says. They focus on themselves. They give their version of the story. We don't do any of that. Our mindset is different. It's distinct. It's unique. It is of the wisdom of God. When you water it down, when you appeal to the flesh, when you try to impress your listener, your mindset isn't distinct. It's just like everyone else's. You're just doing the same things that the world does. And so, in our ministries, in our evangelism, our mindset must be distinct. A second lesson for evangelism from the wisdom of God in Paul's preaching is that the message is direct. We've seen that the mindset is distinct. Secondly, and our last for this morning, the message is direct. Look at verse 2 with me. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul tells the Corinthians that he made a deliberate choice to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The word determine indicates exactly that, a willful choice. And the tense that he uses in the Greek indicates that he had decided on this before ever going to Corinth, and we can safely assume before going anywhere and embarking on any sort of ministry that he chose to only focus on Jesus Christ in the crucifixion. This verse explains the reasoning behind his behavior in verse 1. The directness of the message didn't need superiority of wisdom, or superiority of speech rather, or worldly wisdom. He wasn't interested in talking about the insights or ideas of man or society, not even his own. Let me put it this way. In Paul's gospel ministry, all he cared about was what would honor the Lord through the proclamation of God's saving grace. He was not swayed by the expectations or opinions of man. He was not seduced by the allure of fame or fortune. He was singularly focused on the gospel. On a side note, This also explains why he could endure such hardships. Why he could live in poverty, where he could live with a full belly. Why he could be stoned and beaten and shipwrecked. And not just so focused on his circumstances that he quits because he was so singularly focused on the gospel. And again, it's not that Paul just threw all worldly knowledge aside. Even that knowledge was used for the purposes of his singular focus and passion, the gospel. In fact, we, we're we going to see this, and we're going to see this right now, but when we come to it uh, later in our study of 1 Corinthians, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 22. And we see how Paul uses his understanding of his culture, his worldly knowledge, his worldly wisdom, not at the forefront of his ministry but as a means to even bolster his opportunities to share the gospel 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 19 through 22 for though i am free from all men i have made myself a slave to all so that i may win more to the jews i became as a jew so that i might win jews to those who are under the law as under the law though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Verse 21. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. So in all of these situations, Paul had to use his knowledge of particular cultures and social cues to present the gospel to different people. So he had worldly wisdom and knowledge and used it in his ministry, not in place of his ministry. But he avoided the temptation to wax eloquent on anything outside of God's saving truth. He concludes, In verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 9, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. It reminds me also of the famous sermon on Mars Hill or the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. Considered the the best evangelistic sermon in the scriptures outside of the sermons of Jesus Christ. Remember he's there, he's kind of on the run, uh, being persecuted, being pushed out. He's waiting for his friends to join him, but he looks around and he sees all these these uh, pagan statues and centers of worship and altars and he He is so singularly focused on the gospel that he cannot stay quiet, though this was an unplanned stop in his itinerary. He preached the gospel and he noticed what they did there was there are all these statues and just in case they missed a god these polytheists had a an altar and the inscription rather than having the name of a god or goddess it said to the unknown god or to an unknown god just to cover all their bases and so paul uses even the wisdom of understanding a pagan sinful un- godly polytheistic religion and uses that as a platform and says, let me tell you about this unknown God and goes on to explain a complete and full explanation of the gospel starting with creation. If you want to know how to properly share the gospel from start to finish, um, there's extra things that people don't necessarily need to know to be saved. Acts 17, read it. It'll be helpful for you. But back to the point. He used this wisdom, he used this intellect, his intellectual faculties, his abilities to observe, to use that as a means to share the gospel. We need to do this. You, this is, this is one of the reasons, and I don't know the mind of God outside of his revealed will, but the Lord has placed you in different places for different reasons. Right? For, for the accountant, you can, you can, Talk to your coworkers on a level that I cannot. To, to, to teachers, to instructors, to engineers, whatever it may be. You, you've heard me say this before, but back when I was in college ministry, uh people uh as a group, there's probably no place where legalism within conservative churches is more prevalent than within college ministries. And so people would come to me as the pastor and they would say, hey, these people are only going to church on Sunday. They're not going to small group or prayer meeting. Uh, How do I confront them? Or they would come to me and they would feel guilty and say, am I in sin because I can't go to midweek small group because I got to study for the boards? And I would just encourage them and say, listen, the Lord is preparing you as a pre-med student to get into med school and to have a practice so that you have access and ability to preach the gospel in your field of expertise in a way and with an accessibility that I as a preacher or I as a normal individual in another field could not, even as a patient. And so we need to see this. We need to understand this. I'm not saying to sin, according to Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. We are not to actively forsake the assembling of the believers together. We need to be at church. We need to be a part of live streams. We need to be actively engaged. But we need to be careful uh, that we don't misinterpret Scripture. So my point is not, I'm just, I'm not giving you a license to avoid fellowship and small groups and things like that. Uh, My point is that you have to understand that your place that God has put you in, use that. Use your secular understanding and your, your secular wisdom to, to, to be able to convey the message to people that other people cannot access. So this is what Paul did. And you see in, in all of these things, uh, he was able uh, to speak to the Jews. He was Jews, even though he was no longer under the law, under the law, and then he goes on and he lists all of those different types of people. Now we must note that when we read the epistles, he is clearly giving instruction outside of just the gospel message. Understand that in context, What he's referring to here is when he first came to Corinth to preach the gospel, as uh, I mentioned earlier. But even that instruction to believers is centered around what he says is his focus here. Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's clear. It's direct. See, with Paul... We find no excuse, no justification, not even sympathy toward those who take certain things out of the gospel, even if that means larger crowds are reached. Of course you're going to get more people to come to you when you take out the problem of sin and depravity. Nobody wants to be told how bad they are, how much they fail in the eyes of the only one who matters, especially when they're trying to be good people. Of course, you're going to fill stadiums when you tell people that God exists for you rather than you existing for God. And of course, you'll be invited onto major secular talk shows when you tell people that God wants you to be happy, healthy, and rich in this life because your message will be no different than the unbelieving talk show host. They invite these false teachers on because they're all preaching the same message but the preacher has a wider influence because he invokes the name of God. But what happens when you preach total depravity, taking up your cross, prosperity guaranteed only in the life to come? Small crowds? Maybe. Persecution? Maybe. Relative obscurity? Maybe. Glorify God? Absolutely. Serve the Creator and the created without a doubt. Offer men eternal life, yes. Turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 of 2 Timothy 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Stop there. He's talking to Timothy, who has a pastoral ministry, but this applies to all of us. He says, in season and out of season. This means all the time. You need to be ready now to share the gospel and not when you see that opportunity and you're fumbling and thinking, what do I do? What do I say? How do I present it? Like a soldier of a country that isn't at war still trains every single day of his life. He is just as equipped to fight right now as if he were on the battlefield. Or the athlete trains during the off season. He doesn't just pick up the bat or the ball or put on the helmet when when it's an hour before his first official game. Much to many of your dismay, the NBA is canceled. But you're not going to show up at Steph Curry's house and say, hey, can you make a three-pointer? And he says, no, I'm out of practice. It's off-season. I can't do it. You can guarantee that he's practicing still every day. And then Paul continues and gives his reasoning in 2 Timothy 4. Look at verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Did you catch that? False teachers don't need to twist arms. They don't need to convince people to believe what they're saying. It already appeals to them. In fact, in verse three, false teachers say what they say because the people have, quote, accumulated for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. You think there would be multimillionaire false teachers if it weren't for the people wanting them, wanting to hear what they say? The end result in verse four, After they have gotten these teachers for themselves is that they will turn away from gospel truth and they will turn to myths. Myths. That that seems like a strong word. We understand it from 2000 years ago. But today, what, what's a myth? I think a, a modern day, in a modern day time, even in a, in a, a, a Christianized country like ours, people follow myths. What's a myth? What's a myth today? The teachings of cults and cultural fables, yes, those are myths, but myths are also found in many self-proclaimed Christian churches. Anything that is not the complete gospel, even if the message contains the word Jesus and talks about the cross as the main characters, can be myths. Jesus died for you to be happy, myth. You are inherently a good person and God has a wonderful plan for your life. Myth. Come to Jesus and your life will be pain-free. Myth. By the way, for our personal evangelism, this speaks again to the fear of man. It's not what if they don't like my message or pressure me to change it. It's when. According to 2 Timothy 4, if they had their choice, the messenger would not be you and the message would not be the gospel. So of course, there's going to be some pushback. Of course, there's going to be questions. Of course, there's going to be confusion. But that goes back to the main point. Our message is direct. We've said this before and earlier. When you combine worldly wisdom to God's wisdom in the gospel message, of course they're going to be confused. I've said this before, I'll say it again. You cannot debate someone into heaven. You cannot trick them into heaven. Just preach the gospel in its directness, in its clarity and simplicity. It's a proven winner, friends. It is the only proven winner. The gospel does not rest on the magnetism of big personalities. The effectiveness of the gospel is not based on whether you can win a debate or if you can prove God exists or answer any and all theological questions. Its power does not falter because you're a sinner, because you're scared, or because you lack eloquence. The power of the gospel is found in Jesus Christ And when Jesus Christ on the cross said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. The story is complete. The message is complete. There is nothing else you need to add because nothing can change what he has done. Nothing can alter what he has finished. Nothing can steal his victory. Nothing can change his promises. Preach Jesus Christ and him crucified and let God handle the rest. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Five lessons for evangelism from the wisdom of God and Paul's preaching. The mindset is distinct. The message is direct we'll look at the remaining three in two weeks let's pray heavenly father we thank you for the clarity the uniqueness and the simplicity of the gospel message father in our presence in society our influence by the culture we are tempted to try to convince people that you exist and we try to add to the gospel we try to manipulate it to make it more palatable or we just get so scared that we don't say anything may we repent of this false thinking may we present the gospel yes using our understanding of our culture and our Modern and local vernacular to preach the gospel, but help us to avoid the temptation to seek our own ego, to impress others, to win friends. Father, help us to just be clear. May we be just stewards, taking what you have given us and giving it to other people pure and simple, that's it. Give us the clarity, give us the boldness. Even today and in the coming weeks as more solid churches are live streaming, I pray that those who have been drawn in by those who tickle their ears with a false message, a watered-down gospel, may they find other solid churches that are preaching the truth on their phones, on their TVs, on their apps, that they might be exposed to the clear and distinct message of the gospel and repent of the false ways that they've been taught this far. Be with our church, be with the Christians around the world, that even in our ministry towards those who are hurting, towards those who are in the, we know that our or have been um, exposed or even tested positive for COVID-19, those who are willingly exposing themselves on a daily basis in their medical professions. May we use the worldly knowledge to provide for them, to support them financially, but may we see ultimately the power found in your scripture, in your truth, to preach the gospel to the unbelieving, and to encourage, through your word, the believing. Use us, Father, for your glory in this regard. In Jesus' name, amen.